Hey guys, welcome to Philosophers and Mad Men. I'm Josh Moran. I'm Dave Putman. Today's guest is Craig Kashik. He is a professional <laughs> photographer slash dog photographer uh, slash writer, educator about dogs. Hunter. And, and most notably a hunter. We had a really cool conversation with Craig Um Mostly about his book, Pointing Dogs, Volume 1, The Continentals. In my opinion, one of my most valued books that I have in my uh, you know, dog library is this book. It took Craig 12 years and over 15 trips to Europe where he went and hunted over each and every breed of dog in this book specifically about hunting dogs. The book itself is about six pounds and worth every single penny, not only for the valuable information and the obscure information regarding the actual dogs, but the photography itself is, for any photo nut, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. We had a great conversation with Craig and talked about a lot of different aspects of training, pointing dogs, but also just, you know, living with some of these more intense, nutty bird dogs and just why some of us are more drawn to that than others. And ultimately, I think you guys will enjoy the conversation we had. Craig's a very knowledgeable guy and, uh, you know, you should, you should be able to hopefully enjoy this, this episode as much as Dave and I enjoyed making it. If you want to check out some of Craig's work, I would encourage you I would encourage you to go to dogwilling.ca. Yes, Craig is Canadian. Don't hold it against him. Dave's Canadian, too. And I'll fucking fight you. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, uh, dogwilling.ca. And uh, check out some of his photography. You can see some of the dogs that he hunts over and works with. And uh, I guess without babbling any longer, here is the episode. Love you guys. Putman, sidekick. And uh, how exactly do you pronounce your last name, Craig? Koshik. Koshik. Okay, cool. It's pretty much how I believe I was doing it, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's about awesome. And you have been kind of uh, immersed in dogs for quite some time, correct? Yeah, I would say my obsession began about 25 years ago. No, I correct. I stand corrected. Um, I've always loved dogs. I've just never had them as a as a youngster. We had a little mutt when I was growing up named Snoopy for a couple of years, but that was about it. So, but all my life I've been a hunter, and I've always wanted a hunting dog. Um, but I had to wait until my wife and I had a so that we could actually have a dog in our backyard. So that was only about uh, 25 years ago. So no, I've been into dogs my entire life, but I've only sort of had hands-on experience with them for about 25 years. Okay, cool. Um, And I first became familiar with you because of your book on pointing dogs, which I happened to see on a website somewhere and being uh, a bit of a dog nerd myself, I really wanted to check it out. I've I've done some some bird hunting over the years, and my parents have a uh, a German short hair pointer they got from a, a rescue. But she's she's definitely not a bird dog in in the best sense of the word. Uh, you know, not really a go out and hunt type of animal. <laughs> uh, she does like to run around a lot, so she, I, I think she could have been a, a nice bird dog if somebody took the time with her in the beginning, but uh, she just didn't get the benefit. And I am a huge fan of your, your book, Pointing Dogs, Volume 1, The Continentals. One of the first thing I wanted to ask you about that is uh, when Volume 2 is coming out. I'm currently working on volume two. Um, uh, so, in uh, in uh, Europe, the overall family of pointing dogs, it's, it's a large family where there's 50 some breeds in that family. Well, that family is divided into two sort of divisions. In Europe, 
Um, in contrast to the United States and, and North America, in North America, when we run field trials or when we do competitions, we don't divide the pointing dogs into the two families of the ones that were developed on the continent uh, versus the ones that were developed in uh, England and Ireland. In Europe, they do. Uh, they divide them into two families. They call them the British and Irish pointing breeds in one family, and then the rest are the ones from the continent or the continental uh, pointing dogs. So when I first started my book, I realized that if I was going to put all of them in, both families in one book, it would be a brick. I mean, the book already is you know, six pounds or something, it's uh, almost 400 pages. To put, you know, another couple of chapters, for, especially for setters and pointers, would have made it twice that size. So I decided to divide it into two volumes, uh, to do the first volume on all the breeds that come from continental Europe, and the second volume I'm working on right now, um, but it's taking me, well, the first volume took 12 years to write. Uh, I traveled for, basically my wife and I went back and forth to Europe 12 or more, actually probably close to 20 times. Whoa. Wow. So this one, I'm about halfway through, I would say. I still have at least a couple more years. Awesome. I'm looking forward, forward to it. For volume. I, I'm a huge, huge fan of this book, and uh, it's one of those things where I, I oftentimes will just sit down and, and read through um, you know, different sections, and uh, the, the photography super nice as well. Well, thank you. I'm a, that's what I do for a living. I'm a professional photographer and a writer, and I, I own and operate a photography school uh, where I train other professional photographers. Um, but, I mean, you know, I'm not a professional, or wasn't a professional dog photographer. I'm a commercial photographer, uh, advertising and, and fashion and that sort of stuff. But eventually I got out of that to now I just only photograph dogs, and I only write about dogs, and I run my school. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad, and I, I get that feedback. A lot of people... You know, tell me they like the book, they like the information, they, they like the photographs. But I, I'm always very honest and open with them. And I'll tell anybody who listens that I actually wrote the book for me. Um, I, I, I wrote it because there wasn't one like that on the market. I, I got into dogs. I got a Weimaraner. My first bird dog was a Weimaraner. And I loved that dog. And he was an excellent dog. And um, it never dawned on me that there were other breeds. I, I only got him <laughs> because I saw one in the field one day, and I thought they were really good, and I wanted one just like that. I didn't really shop around. I didn't look into any other breeds. I just saw one, and I thought, well, that's a good dog. I want one. But as soon as I got him and started participating in trials and tests and, and, and hanging out with other people with dogs, I realized, oh, my goodness, there's so many different breeds of dogs. Where do they come from? Where did you know who developed them? How are they? Why are they different? What's their name? And why are they named that way? And why do they look different? And so I just started studying them, and I thought, well, I'll just go get a book that's going to explain all of this to me. Mm. And looked and looked, and this is just sort of at the beginning of the internet. So I looked online as well, but I looked for books, I looked for information online, and I realized that there was just information out there, but a lot of it was contradictory, sure. or it was very old information, uh, or it was just flat out wrong. So the more I dug into it, the more I realized that, you know, this is a really interesting subject and a really interesting uh, project to do that doesn't exist. Yeah. Writing for myself and photographing for myself, and I thought, well, I'll put it all together in a book, and if I sell one copy, fine, but the first copy is going to me, and I'm going to read it. <laughs> so anytime I hear that somebody else is enjoying it, I, I, I get a kick out of that. But that, frankly, is just the, the, the cherry on the Sunday, right? That's just something that is an extra bonus for me. It wasn't the, wasn't the real purpose. The purpose was, this is really cool stuff that I wanted to learn. And so... That's the way to go about it, man. That's perfect. Yeah, and when, you know, I put it together, I decided, well, I'm going to publish it myself. I'm going to, and again, this is at the beginning of the internet. By the time the book was ready to go, you know, 12 years later, uh, the internet had grown up. Publishing companies had grown up. Uh, the ability to form your own company and, and, and print your own book and distribute your own book via, via your own website and things like Amazon and whatnot, that had all grown up. Prior to that, existed it would have been impossible my book would have been impossible to write research uh and 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 publish and produce without the internet so really it's a print book but it's the product of of you know the online universe really oh that's awesome so uh you said you're you're a big hunter uh i myself yes. am also a hunter mainly uh deer and uh i do try and get out and hunt some birds, ducks. Uh, there's not a ton of pheasant, things of that nature where I'm living. You can go do uh, kind of like the, the canned hunt type stuff. But um, 
you know, it's it's definitely not my preferred. I live on the Great Lakes in Buffalo. Sure. Uh, not a ton of upland game birds, really. How about where where you're living? Beautiful. I, yeah, no, I'm I'm lucky. I uh, well, I shouldn't. Say, I, I really am lucky. But when I look outside, it's minus thirty, and there's seven feet of snow in front door, in front of my door. I, I don't feel lucky. But yeah. no, I really am. Mm-hmm. I live in Manitoba, and it's in the middle of Canada. And Manitoba is a province which is approximately the size of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are about a million people who live here, <laughs> and almost all of them live in Winnipeg. So the rest of the province is more or less empty. Uh, there are more birds than people here, put it that way. There, you know, I mean, it's, it's just a vast sort of wilderness. And I am the grandson of uh, pioneers. Both of my parents, my mom's family comes from Iceland. Family comes from Ukraine. And they settled here. They were settlers and, and pioneers in this area. So they basically hunted to feed their families. And I grew up, obviously, in that culture. I, uh, my dad took me hunting when I was four. Um, and I've hunted ever since. Um, it was a cultural thing. It was a survival thing. It was just what we did up here. Well, I always hunted, but they never had dogs. Uh, they lived on farms, and the dog's job was to bark if somebody came up the driveway. But that way, they didn't have the money or the wherewithal to get an actual purebred or, or you know, a, a dedicated dog for hunting. They just had dogs as guard dogs, more or less, and then they would go and hunt on their own. So I grew up mainly hunting uh, uh, ducks and geese on a marsh called the Netley or Lebo Marsh, which is sort of a world-class marsh. We now hunt on a marsh next to it called the Delta Marsh, which is world famous as well. But Manitoba is well known for that. So I always hunted ducks and geese and grouse because we have um, sharp tail and, and rough grouse around here. But I also hunted deer and moose and elk and all the big game until I got dogs. Unfortunately, the um, bird dog season coincides with our big game season, so I don't do a lot of big game hunting anymore. I get out a couple times for deer every year and try and get a buck, but um, I focus mainly now on upland bird hunting and waterfowl hunting uh, with my dogs, just because I'm to the point now that if I didn't have dogs, I don't even know if I would hunt. I mean, I probably would because I love game meat. That's our favorite thing on the table. For sure. Um, but I, I no longer really hunt for game. I hunt to watch the dogs. That's, to, to my mind, that's the most thrilling aspect of it, is just to be out there and watch the dogs. Um, it's not about limits. It's not about, you know, we hunt basically to have supper. So if it's just my wife and I, well, we'll figure tonight we need, you know, and a snipe or something, and that's what we hunt for. And that's our limit for the day. We hunt what we eat, eat what we hunt, and that's about it. But the rest of it is all about just watching the dogs work. That's pretty fantastic. It sounds quite lovely. Well, it's weird echo. So, uh, when you go out hunting, Craig, what dogs are you taking with you? How many dogs do you have, and who are you taking with you on a I don't know on a Saturday hunt? So I'm sort of in a transitionary period here. I first started off with Weimaraners. I got my first Weimaraner years and years ago, and then added another and then another and another, and eventually ended up with several of them at the same time. Um, we had short-haired Weimaraners and long-haired Weimaraners that we imported from Germany. Our short-haired ones are from the U.S., and our long-haired ones are from Germany, and they're all... Um, I say we're in a transition period because... Uh, a couple of them are older and retired now and living elsewhere, and we lost two. Uh, two years ago, our best dog we ever had, we lost him in the prime of his life. He died to, he had lymphoma. And he was only seven years old. It just about the magnificent, magnificent dog that died of a terrible illness. And then last fall, we lost our old dog. She was almost 17. We got her from a breeder in Texas, and she was one of the best dogs I ever hunted over. And she, she hunted for 17 seasons. Um, in fact, up till a month before we had her put down, she was still hunting and fetching and swimming. Not too much for her, so we said goodbye. So now, I've we thought about getting other wine runners, but it was just too much. It was just too emotional for us, so we decided. And since. My wife and I are probably the only two people in the world that have seen every single breed of pointing dog in the world in their own home countries. We travel to all those countries to see them. You know, which what should we do? What what breed should we get? And so we put our top ten list of the dogs we like, and we ended up getting a dog. Expand. It's a it's a breed from France. Um, it looks like a tricolored setter, more or less. 
Uh, and that's the dog we hunt with. So to answer your question, up till last year, we would have been hunting with our wine runners from American field trial lines or German lines. Uh, but this year, uh, the whole season, we spent in the field with our dogs from France. We've sort of switched countries and switched allegiances and are flying the French flag. <laughs> And uh, there was a little bit of breaking up, so I just want to um, clarify for, for people who are, are listening. You you said that uh, the dog you're hunting with is a Picardy Spaniel, yeah? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> there's a bit of a confusing one because in English we almost exclusively use the term Spaniel for things that flush birds. So we have Cocker Spaniels, we have uh, English Springer Spaniels, and these are that don't point. But in France, they have a six or seven different breeds of what's called Ipagnol. And Ipagnol is a French word which translates to Spaniel. But it actually means a pointing dog, not a flushing dog. Okay. So people heard of Brittany before? Yep. Well, they dropped the name Spaniel from Brittany because it caused too much confusion. But the fact is there's still a bunch of other French breeds that are called Spaniels, but they're pointing dogs. So this is a, a dog from Picardy. So Brittany's come from Brittany. There's another province called Normandy, and then just above that is Picardy. It's called the Picardy Spaniel. So Fair and there are they are brown and white and tan. They have tan points. They kind of look like a tricolored Gordon Setter almost. Yeah, I actually uh, got your book open right now, so Dave could see a picture of him. We're yeah, well, that particular dog there was one of the reasons we got into the Picardy Spaniel. That's in Picardy. Picardy is a wonderful region. It's a, it's it's where basically where World War One happened. If if you drive around there, you see nothing but rolling hills of green winter wheat and graveyards. Just hundreds of graveyards with thousands of graves in them. That's basically ground zero for World War One. And when we were driving around there, we met a fellow, a friend of ours, who was training that particular dog and a bunch of other ones. And as soon as I saw that dog run and I saw that dog hunt, oh, man, I would have bought that dog on the spot, the one that's in my book. <laughs> so ever since then, they sort of stuck in my mind. I always thought, man, I'd love to have one of those. And so when we got to a point where we couldn't get another wine runner, we just couldn't handle the emotions of it, we thought, you know what, let's switch completely. So I got this uh, uh, Picardy Spaniel, and he has turned into an unbelievably good dog. His name is Leo, and he just turned a year old uh, last month. And I'll tell you what, he's one of the best dogs I ever hunted with. Just right out of the box, just a fantastic dog. Oh, that's perfect. So I, I had a couple things I'd, I'd like to touch on there as you were talking about. Namely, uh, for people who aren't maybe into uh, the hunting aspects or, or why, you know, hunting kind of selected for different styles of hunting dogs. Yes. Uh, can you maybe just elaborate a little bit on the difference between a flushing and a pointing dog? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, when you head to the field, basically you and your dog um, have the same goal. You want to find game and you want to put that game in your game bag. Uh, you want to bag some game. So there's a couple of different ways you're going to do it. Um, you know, traditionally, a lot of our breeds were developed uh, in England. Um, you know, uh, people think that dog breeds are really old and they're not. Uh, there's no such thing as a purebred dog until about the late 1880s mm -hmm. uh, or 1870s to 1880s. That's when the Victorian era in England uh, and in Britain was on, and that's when dog breeding, as we know it today, selective pure breeding of dogs started in the Victorian era, mainly in Britain, and then spread out, uh, of course, across the seas to the U.S. And, and, and throughout Europe. But, but really, what it was was a way to uh, mimic or to to follow the industrialization uh, of products. In other words, before the Victorian age, before the industrial age, everything that you owned that you had more than one of was. Different. In other words, if you had a, a, a bunch of plates on your dinner table with forks and knives, every single one of them was different. And everybody was sitting in a different chair because they were all made by hand. That was the way the world was until about 150, 200 years ago. Then we discovered uh, mass production. So now if I go out and buy a set of knives, they're identical. All four chairs around my table are the same. And this computer that I'm talking to you on is the same as any other Mac anybody ever bought. Well, that was an absolutely revolutionary concept at that time. It freaked people out, and they thought the more identical they could be, the better they were. Um, you could imagine living your entire life never seeing two identical things, and then all of a sudden being able to go to a store and buy something that's identical every time and every day. Well, they applied that same idea to dogs. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to that, dogs were basically dogs. I mean, they happened to look 
the same in this one village because they were all basically inbred. Sure. Because they never met with the dogs in the next village or in this one mountain range or that little village or this little farm town. They all looked the same because they were all basically related. So they weren't breeds as we know. They were specifically selected to be the way that we wanted them to be. So because this was mainly driven by the English, who at that time were the superpower of the world, they were basically where the states are now. They were the the mega superpower of the world. They had a a colony across every part of the planet and all the money. That's the So, so at the time, the kind of hunting they did is they would go out and shoot, let's say, small game. They, you know, still a bit of big game hunting, but mainly birds and small game, rabbits and hares. So if you're an English squire in 1870, uh, well, you've got enough money to breed a bunch of Labrador retrievers, and their job was to run out and retrieve shit type stuff for you. They would, they would literally you know, stand beside you or walk beside you until you shot something, and they would fetch it for you. Yeah. Uh, if it was stuff that ran away and needed to be flushed, well, you selected dogs that would, instead of walking beside you, they would quest in front of you. They would search back and forth, maybe 20, 30, 40 yards in front of you looking for stuff. And as soon as they found it, a rabbit or a woodcock or a snipe hiding there, they would rush at it. They would run at it. We call it fly or die. They would, they would smell it. That thing wants to hide and hunger down in a bush. Well, these things would dive in there and spring them. And that's the name Springer Spaniel comes from. Cocker Spaniels were specialists on woodcock. That's why they're called Cocker Spaniels. And so they were specifically made to to hunt in a way that's close enough so that you can shoot whatever they're going to flush. We call it shotgun range. So maybe 20, 30 yards in front of you, they're running. They never go farther than that. They never go farther. they got to stay close. And whatever's hiding, they flush it so you can shoot it. And then they're going to go and fetch it for you. Then the third option was a dog that went further. Now, if that dog is running further, if that dog's 50, 100, 200, 400 yards in front of you, and it finds game and flushes it, well, there's no shotgun in the world that's going to take it down. Yeah. So somehow that dog has to figure out, okay, I need to stay here and just sort of show the guy where it is. We call it pointing. And it would indicate where that game is. Now, this is a very old um, behavior with dogs. It started actually in Europe in the uh, 12th and 13th century uh, for, for guys that were using crossbows to shoot rabbits and, and, and partridge on the ground. They used to find that these dogs, if they, if they circled the game or if they sat there and pointed at it, they would allow them to get up nice and close and shoot it. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these behaviors are natural to canines. They're natural to coyotes and wolves. Coyotes, wolves, they point, they run, they flush. But what man has done, and especially in the late 1800s, the mid-1800s, was to distill those instincts and make them so that, you know, you take a pointing breed, you take a German short hair pointer, you take an eight-week-old puppy, and that thing will point. It has no idea what it's doing. It has no idea why it's doing it, but it points. Yeah. You know, and a cocker will flush, and a retriever will grab something and bring it back to you. So that's how the breeds were more or less formed. I mean, man just saw what was in coyotes, he saw what was in wolves, and figured, okay, let me distill that down and let me breed it so that we have exaggerated huge amounts of those one or two traits that we really want. For sure. My friend uh, Patrick Burns talks about um, kind of that movement happening uh, in very close relation to the enclosure movement in the Victorian era where they were you know, building walls and hedges so they could keep their livestock separate and they had better control over which animals were breeding and how that you know, probably directly influenced people's thinking with dogs to be able to, to greater select for, for detailed output. That's exactly it. Patrick Burns Terrier Man is one of the greatest gurus on the internet right now. I'll tell you what, I read his, I read his blog on a daily basis. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, he talks about Robert Bakewell. It was an English uh, uh, agriculturalist uh, who really started that whole idea. He was the first to start selectively breeding sheep and horses and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, dog breeding comes out of there. Prior to that, we had land races. We call it, they're like a breed, but they just sort of happened to be there because of where they were geographically. They were geographically and socially separated from other groups. So they ended up taking on characteristics for that one region. Um, One of the oldest breeds, and I just helped a friend bring one here into Winnipeg. Uh, It's a beautiful breed of dog called the Brac de Bourbonnais. And Hmm. it is a pointing dog, looks like a tiny pointer. Um, Short-haired dog, lots of spots, and it's a lot of them are born without a tail. 
Uh, it's just a natural genetic mutation that happened in the long ago, and a lot of them just happen, and they still to this day have that mutation. This dog that we brought in, we imported, he had a little tiny stubby tail. That's a problem. <laughs> and that's just a feature of that breed that started, you know, who knows when. Um, if you look at the beginning of my book, one of the breeds that really freaks a lot of people out is the Spanish double-nosed pointer. Yeah, that thing's uh, awesome looking. It's a cool-looking dog. <laughs> Yeah, well, that one actually is a really good example that sort of explain or, or, or to illustrate. Like when I first started my book, um, every reference that I ever read about that dog said it was extinct, um, and I thought it was. And I had written that chapter under that assumption, and I got all these historical documents and wrote the chapter. And then as the internet started growing, I was able to sort of do Google image searches and stuff. And then one day, in one of my searches, it pops up, and I thought, "Holy shit, this dog!" Is still alive. That breed is still alive. Yeah. So I was able, again, via the internet, I was able to contact a fellow in Spain, and he was doing, in the 1980s, he was doing his veterinary college studies. And as his final thesis, he had to do a project on anything he wanted. He decided he would do a project on that old dog breed, and he wanted to see if there were any left around. And so what he did is he traveled around all the old mountain hill towns in, in Spain looking for these old dogs, and he actually found a few that were still around, owned by farmers or old hunters that hadn't been to the city in 100 years. And he ended up buying as many as he could and reviving that breed, and he's now bred over 3,000 of them. But their, their unique trait that they're selected for is to have a split nose. And the picture freaks a lot of people out. When I first saw those dogs, my wife and I freaked out because in person they looked really freaky. Their <laughs> nose looks like the end of a double barrel shotgun. There's like just thinking that. It's yeah. quite bizarre. Uh, we ended up falling in love with those dogs that we saw. They're really cute after you get over the shock of their freaky nose. Um, <laughs> but they are absolutely ancient the way they hunt, the way they look. And that feature of the double nose, you have to wonder, well, okay, where did it come from? And it turns out that Every dog breed, and even people, can have that genetic mutation. It's called a hair lip in people, uh, and in dogs, it's called a bifid nose, and it is a fault in most breed standards. They say, no, no, it's not allowed, it's not allowed, it's not allowed, for good reason, because it could lead to all sorts of problems. But for some strange reason, 500 years ago in Spain, somebody had one of those dogs, and my guess is it was really good. And they thought, <laughs> oh, I know why it's good. It's got two noses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was probably the logic. They probably thought, well, two nose is better than one. So they, they continued to breed them, and they bred related dogs to related dogs, and they retained that trait. And that's really is, you know, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. It's nothing special. It's just whatever we choose, you know. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Very cool-looking dog. I do have a, a rather personal question for you. Perhaps you can help me. Uh, so... It's almost getting to be puppy time, and by that I mean, you know, a couple months once my life's yeah. ready for it. Really, really looking at the wire pointer and uh, I'm sorry, which one? the German wire-haired pointer yes, yes. And, and the German wire-haired pointing Griffon. Yes. Can you help me understand the, the significant difference between the two? Aesthetically, that's kind of exactly what I'm looking for. Um, sure. In terms of hunting. I'm not much of a hunter, but wouldn't mind certainly getting into it. Um, experience with dogs can certainly not an issue, but uh, sure. help me. Okay, so, so all the wire-haired breeds, what we need to understand here is that we you're looking at a book and we're looking at a project that, that sort of illustrates all of the different varieties that we have, but in reality, what we need to understand is that there are basically three types of pointing dogs. Um, there are only three types. There are those with a short coat, the French call them bracts. There are those with a long coat, the French call them épagneux, and there are those with a wire-haired coat, and the French call them griffins. So, but in those three, you know, sort of major divisions, there are little subdivisions. And those subdivisions no longer have much to do about the coat or the style of their hunting, but they have more to do with the culture in which they were created. So if we take, for example, the wire-haired pointing griffin versus the German wire-haired pointer, the major difference isn't really the coat, although, yes, the griffins might have a woolier coat, a longer coat, and the wire-haired the German wire-haired might have a slightly wiry, more wiry, uh, harder coat. But at the end of the day, the biggest difference between those two groups of dogs is the culture in which they were developed. And that is reflected in the way that they hunt, 
in their attitudes, in their uh, disposition for training and all that sort of stuff. So the difference between those two breeds uh, in general, and it's really hard to generalize because at the end of the day, dogs are individuals. Sure. Um, you know, there's more difference within a breed than there is between different breeds. That being said, we can look at tendencies. We can look at um, sort of... Um, the way I explain it to most people is that when a breeder gets it just right, a breeder who's trying to breed the best griffin in the world and a breeder who's trying to breed the best German wire pointer in the world, if it goes perfect for both of them, I don't care where they start, I don't care where they live, I don't care what tradition they come from, their dogs are going to be pretty similar. They're going to run around, they're going to be great family pets, they're going to hunt, they're going to point, they're going to swim, they're going to fetch. So what I say is that the difference is the fact that, number one, you never have perfect dogs. So their, their breeding will never be perfect. So you're going to have issues. How big those issues are and what those issues are is what determines the difference. So with the German ones, if, if, any, if a German wire pointer has anything too much, it has too much Germanness in it. If it's perfect, it's a... No, I'm serious. If it's a perfect dog, it'll be a perfect dog. It'll be friendly, it'll be easy to train, it will love your kids, it'll hunt, it'll run, it'll point, it'll fetch, it'll swim. But if it has any issue, my thought is that the issue, the most likely issue you have is it might just be a little too intense. They are pretty intense dogs. German wire hairs, man, they, they, you know, they might be hell on raccoons in your backyard. Your neighbor's cat might not be safe with them. Again, if it's a perfect dog, your neighbor's cat will be fine. Um, but if something goes wrong, well, that's where it's going to be. The griffin, on the other hand, will be the opposite. The griffin's from France, so it might be a little French. <laughs> so it might have a little too much or not enough aggressive near. It might not want to kill a cat. It might want to sit down and have a smoke and a glass of wine with the neighbor's cat, right? So, so, so those are the things. So generally speaking, German wire-haired dogs, you can find the sweetest, most, you know, uh, softest disposition wire hairs but the m majority aren't going to be as sweet or aren't going to be as docile as the majority of griffins now can you find griffins that are a blockhead aggressive dog battling cat killer yeah you can find them and can you find your own wire hairs that are soft and easy going yes but if you just reach into any random litter of either of those breeds and pick a puppy out by chance the chances are the griffin will be a little bit softer, a little bit more sensitive, and the German wire hair might be a little bit more intense. That's, but those are just tendencies. Um, I should also add that when you're looking for a pup, what's even more important than the breed is the breeder. So you really have to be careful with both breeds to find a breeder who has who is aligned with you. In other words, who sees dogs in the same way, who wants the same things from their dogs, that does the same thing with their dogs as you do. Um, there are some German wire hair pointer breeders that uh, follow the German tradition. They don't even call their dogs German wire hairs. They call them Drathars, which is the German way. They belong to the German club. They test their dogs in the German system, and they would never, ever sell to a non-hunter. They, they, they won't. They just... You know, unless you say that you're going to be out there hunting, and I encourage you to, it's a great sport, but I mean, they would just say right off the bat, sorry, nope. Uh, whereas some German wire pointer people will, and lots of Griffin people will. So really, it's all about connecting with a good breeder who understands what you want and what you need. Don't buy too much dog, but then again, don't go settle for something that's not enough dog for you either. They're both wonderful breeds. They both take some homework. I'd be happy to help you out and give you some names, but um, the same principles apply. Find a breeder. Ask a ton of questions. Um, look at the dogs. Take a look at the parents. Hang out with the parents. Hang out with the breeder. And then once you've seen eye to eye with the breeder and the parents and the dogs, just grab yourself a pup and you'll be happy. Well, thank you very much. Great. That's uh, fantastic, and I will most certainly uh, I'll get a hold of you off the air, we'll call it. Um, Send me an email. I get about one or two a week from people looking for various breeds, and I'm more than happy to, to send people, uh, you know, to my contacts or, or the clubs that I know and trust and other, other resources. Because it's not like buying a, a Ford truck. You know, you can't just compare price and understand that a F-150 on one guy's lot is identical to the F-150 on the other guy's lot. Dogs are all individuals, and they are highly, highly variable. 
you can find just about anything you want in any breed with enough research. So, absolutely, it sounds. Uh, in for for me, it's sounding like the wire-haired pointer would be the way to go. I I tend to favor the more intense dogs. Oh, then yeah. I mean, German wire. There's some fantastic ones out there, um, and you'll also get into the. And again, if you read into my read in my book, I talk about it a little bit. There's lots of politics in all breeds, and there's lots of divisions. So there's there's different flavors of German wire hair pointer. Put it that way. Like I say, like an F F one fifty. Well, there's your basic F one fifty all the way up to I don't know what the latest one is, but the, it's the big red one with about five hundred horsepower under the hood. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the Raptor, right? It's Yeah, a Raptor is still a 150, and, but so is your basic one. So, yeah, with the German wire hair pointer, there's an excellent club in the States. There's actually several now in the States. So I know some good breeders, so get a hold of me, and I can pass you on to them. Awesome. And I'll have to point out as well, I'm also a fellow Canadian. So oh, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> You're the first person to say that. <laughs> Generally, it's just ridicule from my partner here. Well, being in Buffalo, uh, you know, we're very, very close to Canada, you know, just across the river. You can Uh, see it from your back door, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, Quite literally, yes. There's a healthy, you know, kind of rivalry, like little siblings I tend to find between the, the states and the Canadians around here. Oh, yeah, no, we go to the States quite often. We hunt in North Dakota and South Dakota um, and love it there. Uh, We have friends in Michigan. I've got some of my dogs are from the States. I'm actually working with other Americans to bring in uh, more Picardy Spaniels, so we're working with a bunch of uh, Americans there. I I belong to a club called NAVDA, which is the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, and uh, I do all my training with them in Fargo because there isn't a chapter here, so I go to the States quite often. And, uh, yeah, we have a lot in common. That's, awesome. that's pretty cool. Uh, I must switch gears for a second. Also, uh, as a fellow photography buff, or I should say photographer, I used to do that for a living myself. Um, sure. What camera are you shooting with right now? Um, I mainly use Canons. So I've been a pro now almost, well, a little over 30 years. And 30 years ago, when I first decided to turn pro, the choice, and, and it's true today as well, but the choice between pro cameras is Nikon and Canon. Oh, yeah. So the first day that I went to try out the various cameras, I picked them both up, and I got big fingers, and the Canons have bigger buttons than Nikon's. <laughs> so that was the extent of my research. I, I chose Canon. I've been shooting Canon ever since. But basically, I use um, uh, mainly digital cameras now, although some of the pictures in my book are on film cameras, uh, medium format cameras, small uh, format Leicas and, and others. But I use basically anything that, that I can get my hands on. But typically my kit, when I go photographing dogs, is Canon. Awesome. That's uh, just personal curiosity. I've been, uh, yeah. I really enjoy taking portraits of people. And recently, uh, Josh and I took a trip over last summer over to Learburg in Wisconsin. And uh, I started a little bit of a portrait series of um, gentlemen and their dogs, which I have to continue on. You know, right now it's, well, actually it's like 50 degrees here, but (laughs) Fahrenheit, mind you. Um, But I have to get that going. But it's nice to see your pictures and really, it's almost an inspiration to, or a kick in the ass to get moving on that. Yeah, well, like, you know, so I'm, uh, again, I, I've been a photographer, I'm a, I'm a photo nut, and it just so happens that I, I gotta say, I'm probably like the luckiest guy in the world because, you know, the three things I really, really, well, let's, I would say four things I really like, that's basically what I do. I love photography, I love dogs, I love traveling with my wife, and I love hunting. And that's basically all we do now, uh, is that I, I get to travel to photograph dogs and hunt over them with my wife. So, um, you know, for me, photography was and still is the way I make a living, but it also just happens to be what I do when I'm not making a living. It's, it's you know, when I'm not working, taking pictures, I'm taking pictures for myself. So Absolutely. It's always nice to, to load that memory card up into Lightroom mm-hmm. or whatever at the end of the day, and you just see that one shot, and you're like, oh, that's exactly why I was standing out in the rain for five and a half hours. That's about it. And now um, I'm getting a little bit more into video. I'm a terrible videographer, but I'm enjoying it. And we're finding that the more videos we have, the faster the winter goes because we can relive all of our memories of the hunting season by watching videos that we made the last season. So um, I'm going to start doing more and more of that. And I'm also uh, writing other books and things, keeping active that way. That's cool. Very cool. 
So, Craig, um, you've you've had a bunch of different bird hunting dogs over the years. Is there anything specific that you do when you first get a new dog training-wise to prepare them for hunting? And do you do most of the training for hunting yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, it starts even before I get the dog. I specifically choose dogs that, and this is the one of the, I think the most important thing that I can tell anybody looking for a dog, and one of the most important things that I learned is that, you know, dogs come in all different sizes and shapes, and same thing with hunting dogs, and they come with, you know, all different personality types, and the most important thing to do when choosing a dog is to choose one that fits your own individual personality. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of um, marketing pressure coming from the big kennels and from big lines, uh, from the field trial world and the test world. And I understand why. These people have unbelievably good dogs. They put a lot of money into them, they win a lot, and then they produce a lot of pups that they need to sell. And it's a very seductive sort of a thing. Again, I should mention cars or trucks. It's almost like opening up a car magazine and seeing nothing but ads for Porsches. Now, I like Porsches, and I know what Ferraris are, and I look at Lamborghinis, and I drool at them, but I will be very honest with anybody who offered me a Lamborghini and say, no, thank you. I will wrap that thing around a pole in the first five minutes behind the wheel. I am not a Lamborghini guy, okay? Sure. I don't have the skills or the wherewithal and the personality for that. So even before I get a dog, the first thing I do is I try and narrow it down to breeds that will more likely have the type of dog I want. I hunt to relax. Others hunt for thrills. Others hunt because it's like a roller coaster or they're highly competitive and they want to win the game. And I don't begrudge them anything. All I want for every hunter in the world is to come back with a smile on their face. For me, what puts a smile on my face is being able to go out into nature, walk around a little bit, watch my dogs, relax, have a good time, enjoy the sunlight, enjoy the wind in my face, and come home a happy, satisfied man with something to eat for supper. So I look for dogs from breeds that will give me that. I also talk to breeders. One of my dogs I got, one of the best dogs I got, came out of a field trial breeding, which is usually a pretty hot breeding. I mean, it's usually really, really hot parents that run like the wind and are really good. And the goal, obviously, is to produce other really, really good competitive athletic dogs. And I said to the breeder, I said, listen, if you got a litter of 10, give me the 10th one, the one that you think is not going to be good enough for field trials. In other words, give me the Lamborghini that happens to have the smallest engine and no air in the tires, please. <laughs> that suits me. Um, so, again, before I get the dog, I tell the breeder exactly how I am. And, and am I a, you know, a really active or not so active, intense, not intense, uh, the competitive, not competitive? As for training, again, that starts right there. So I get ones I tell them that are easy to train. Personally, I like what I call out-of-the-box dogs. Dogs that if I do absolutely nothing with that dog other than take it to the field and keep my mouth shut, it will still run and point and fetch. That's what I want. Beyond that, there is quite a bit of training that you can do with a pointing dog. But if, a, if you get a well-bred pointing dog from a, from a well-bred line, and all you want to do is walk around and have that thing run out there, point stuff, and fetch it for you, then you shouldn't have to train it at all. Other than exposing it to gunfire, you got to do that nice and slow and early on. Uh, other than you know some basic obedience, don't crap in the house, don't kill the cat, those sorts of things. So to answer your question, I train my dogs for hunting, and I can do that. Every dog I've ever had has hunted the way I wanted to hunt, run, point, fetch, swim, do whatever I wanted to do. But the minute I have requirements beyond that, in other words, I'm thinking this dog's good enough to breed, I better put it in some competitive tests or, or evaluations so that it can be bred, I send them to a pro. I actually send several of my dogs to a pro because, again, living in Manitoba has its advantage. I'm alone. There's nobody around here. Um, but the disadvantage is there's nobody around here to train with and there's no sure. facilities. I can't find, you know, pigeons and birds and the, the, the wherewithal you need to train a dog. So I train them up to about a year and a half years old, year and a half, two years. And if all I want to do is hunt with them, that's all the training they get. If I want to go beyond that and breed them, yeah, then they need to go to a pro. I send them to a pro. Awesome. Anybody in particular that you like to send your dogs to? 
I send them to professional trainers who work in the same organization I do called NAVDA, North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. Cool. I've also sent a couple of my dogs to their breeders who happen to be really, really good trainers as well. So NAVDA has chapters all over the U.S. and Canada. It's an international uh, organization, and they are non-competitive. In other words, it's not like a contest. You don't take your dog there, and there's 10 other dogs running, and there's one winner and nine losers. NAVDA is an evaluation system. Basically, they run the dogs under the eyes of three judges who follow around for most of the day, and they give them a rating or a score. Uh, and at the end of the day, we call it a prize, a prize one, a prize two, or a prize three, depending on how you've done so in theory, every dog that day could get prize one if they did everything right. Uh, because it's basically a way to evaluate the dog to say, yes, this dog is good enough to breed or eh, maybe not. That's super interesting. And I think that's something that's more or less absent from other aspects of dog breeding when it comes to things like, you know, the kennel clubs specifically. They stereotypically, anyhow, don't have a very good reputation for breeding for purpose or, or breeding for a, a specific set of skills. So I think uh, it's super important, not just if you're going to be hunting with them, but I think personally there should be a lot more of that in dog breeding uh, across the board. <clears throat> oh, yeah, definitely. You know, the German system, they have a, a German saying that says form follows function. In other words, you test for the function and they're going to look like that. The, the analogy I always give to people, and I agree, I mean, dog shows are fun for a lot of people. They go there, they're a social activity, they have some pretty dogs, but they really don't breed for purpose. Because if you're not breeding for something, you're probably breeding away from it. People just think that if we stop breeding for something, you stay where you're at. In other words, Let's say you have a bunch of retrievers and they all love retrieving. Well, if you stop testing them for retrieving and seeing if they like to retrieve, a few generations down the road, it's not going to be the same. It'll deteriorate over time. Same thing with the point. Same thing with the, you know swimming. All these different attributes that we've selected for will disappear over time because Mother Nature really doesn't... Dogs aren't natural. Mother Nature didn't create dogs. Man did. Yeah. And the minute man lets its foot off the gas pedal in terms of that selection, everything is just going to go downhill. Mother Nature wants coyotes and wolves, period. If you took a pit bull and a, and a, and a Great Dane and put them on an island and came back 500 years later, you'd have an island full of damn coyotes. I mean, <laughs> not exactly coyotes. They, they're called pariah dogs. But yep. if you've ever been to any dump outside of any major city in Mexico or Asia, you will look at those dogs there. They are more or less wild feral dogs and they all look the same they're all about the same size they have the same ear set the same tail set the same sort of a coat that's what mother nature wants yeah so when you look at a pug or you look at a pit bull or you look at an english setter you have to realize that the only reason it's there and not like the dog at the garbage dump is because of our selection process the minute you stop selecting that's when things go downhill so in the show ring they do select they select for dogs that are supposed to look that way and it's fine. They do. They have some beautiful dogs. I go to dog shows just to admire the dogs. I love Italian greyhounds, for instance. Love those dogs. Then I go there just to hang out with Italian greyhounds and look at them because they're cool. But people who show dogs and don't test them for performance are completely deluding themselves. Yeah. Um, it, it's because, you know, I say the, the analogy I make is like, let's just say that you want a really good-looking athlete that's a really good athlete, but also really good looking. You have two ways of doing it. You go to a model agency and you say, among all these really pretty people, can you give me one that you know can play soccer? Or you go to the Olympics and you look at all the gold medalists and choose a good looking one. And sure. that's the way I think it should be. We should be choosing the good looking ones from among the best athletes and not the other way around. Not trying to find a, a model that can happen, you know, just happen to be able to throw a ball. Good call. When it comes to uh, pointing dogs, I think, uh, at least I did for a long time, kind of have a, a, this thought in my mind that if you wanted to hunt ducks or if you wanted to hunt geese, you needed a retriever, right? You needed a lab or you needed uh, a dog that was bred for, you know, kind of duck hunting. But more and more, I, I have started to see over the years that people were still actually hunting ducks with something like a wire hair pointer. And again, I just think that kind of circles back to organizations like the one you're a part of that are selecting for dogs that not only are going to point, but won't really have any problem smashing out into the water to bring you something back as well. 
Yes, um, I mean, that is a good point. And I, but I've always said that if I did nothing but hunted ducks, if, if that yeah. was my thing, and I have lots of friends up here who are guides uh, at the Delta Marsh, um, like hardcore hunters, hardcore waterfowl hunters, and if that's and that's but that's all they do. They never hunt anything else. That's that's their main thing. Then yeah, then you should get a specialist breed. Sure. If the only thing you're ever gonna hunt is pheasants, for example, I would probably not even get a pointy breed. I'd probably get a springer or a flushing breed. If the only thing I hunted was ducks and geese, I would probably get a lab or a chessie or something like that. The fact is that I and many many other hunters don't just hunt one thing. Yeah. I happen again. I'm lucky. I live in Manitoba. We tip our typical day starts in the marsh in the morning hunting ducks and then as soon as we're done that nine ten o'clock in the morning we're out in the field we hunt snipe and we hunt woodcock and we hunt grouse and if we still have enough energy at the end of the day we'll go for an evening hunt of ducks again so and i take the same dog the same dog will do everything that i want of it you know um but again if i specialized only in one thing there's a there's a there is a role for specialists but most hunters they 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 you don't want to hunt this they want to hunt that and they want a dog that's versatile and that's why NAFTA is, is, such, is, is probably the only group of its kind in North America that's really growing right now um, you know the AKC is in, in steep decline their, their registration numbers are going down um, their field trial participation their, their show part everything is sort of I think we're out of the golden age of dog purebred dogs now we're, we're moving into a new era and a lot of the old systems the old kennel clubs the old registries they're all in flux they're all facing the same sort of stuff as the publishing industry the photo industry the music industry they're all kind of being changed a lot especially due to the internet but one of the things one of the success stories is NAVDA and it's because it really is for just guys like you and me guys that just want to go out with their dog and hunt a little of this and hunt a little of that you know awesome that's pretty awesome actually yeah I'm checking out the website now and I've got the uh, PDF for membership all ready to go yeah, for my money, NAVDA is the way to go. And again, you really have to sort of fit it to your personality. I have participated in it, and I've watched, and I've I've talked to people who are really into field trials, and I have nothing but admiration for field trial people. These are really hardcore dog people that produce some of the most tremendous dogs in the world. Um, really, it's like the Olympics of dogs, but it is highly, highly competitive. So when you go there, these are people who are every fiber of their being wants to win and they they're competitive they love what they do they're friendly enough they're lovely people but they're highly competitive and i'm not i just know by nature i am not a competitive person that's why i'm not a photojournalist for example i don't want to push to the front of the line to get the big picture of the big day i'll let people ahead of me if somebody wanted to get in front of me i'd say sure i'm way too canadian for that shit right <laughs> So I am not a competitive person. So when I go to a field trial, just the same way as if I watch the Olympics or a car race, I'm thrilled. It's really a cool thing. But the last thing I want to do is beat anybody at anything. I'm not the kind of guy that needs to win stuff. But I understand there are people like that. I admire them and I buy dogs from them because they produce really good dogs. I am the kind of guy that if I see a dog in a test, and that dog's gonna jump in the water and fetch that dummy and come back, and it's a puppy, and the owner is nervous, and I know he's nervous, and he goes up to the edge of the water, and the dog's there, and he's about to send that dog in. In my mind, I'm just screaming, come on, dog, please, go, go, yes, yes, wind. <laughs> so in a NAVDA test, instead of a bunch of people, each one of them individually wanting to beat everybody else, at a NAVDA test, you generally have a bunch of people standing around hoping and crossing their fingers that everybody does really, really well that day. And to me, that's what really appeals to others. They don't have any time for that. They, they want to win and compete. So if it fits your personality, if that's the kind of thing you're into, NAVDA is the best place because they have training days and all they want is to help you have a good dog. That's all they want. They don't want to win anything. They want to help you have a good dog. And so for, for people who are into it, I think there's no better organization in North America right now. Coming from my professional standpoint, that's, pretty much what I do all day so that's in line very much with my personal goals well, then, yeah yeah as a dog trainer yeah you, you, I think you'll really like that now, now of course each club is run by people and any organization with people in it is going to have its own shares of you know politics and bickering and this and that thing. <laughs> but in general NAVDA is, is a fantastic place because it is focused on hunting dogs for hunters 
Some people do both. I have friends that are very successful in NAFTA, and then the next weekend they're up, they're kicking ass in a field trial. And man, I really admire those people um, because they can switch hats and switch gears. But like I say, for me, it always comes down to, I get these questions all the time. What breed, what dog, what breeder, what club? It's the one that most goes with the grain of how your brain is wired. There's no sense in you trying to do something because it's supposed to be the best or the way your friends say to do it or some guy on the internet said to do it. If it doesn't coincide with how you like to live your life and, and how you enjoy your dogs. Dogs, I'm convinced, have one mission on this earth and that's to put smiles on our faces, period. <laughs> so if you're not driving home with your, if your dog ain't putting a smile on your face, then something's going wrong. Like you just, you're not on the same wavelength. And, and you know, that to my mind is, is, the, is the bottom line. I don't care what you win or what scores you get. There's no smiles. It's not worth it. I hear you, man. So uh, this is a question uh, before, before we wrap up here and let you get back to, uh, to running your school. Uh, we, we've been trying to ask uh, our guests and have, have kind of slightly moved away from them the past couple, but uh, are you philosopher or madman? Um, I'd say I'm a mad philosopher. <laughs> Perfect. I, I, I do try and understand the underlying philosophies. I try and look at the big picture. One of the, I gave a keynote conference to NAPTA's annual general meeting a year and a half ago, and I said to these people that I admire the hell out of them because breeders have to have a laser-like focus on what they're doing, and I admire the hell out of people who were able to focus at the granular level of what they're doing in their specific breed, their line, their particular dogs, their training method. For me, I'm like the guy at 30,000 feet in an airplane that's looking from above. Like I, I'm a big picture kind of guy. I'm, I'm looking at trends and historical and sociological and, and, and cultural trends. I like the underlying philosophies of things. But I am mad in the sense that I think the greatest gift my parents ever gave me was just the, the permission to do whatever the heck I want and to make sure that I do it like a crazy person. My book would never be published by any company because it makes no sense. It doesn't make money. It doesn't, it's not, it's not sort of, you know, financially viable sort of thing. Only a madman would do that. Only a madman <laughs> would spend the amount of money and time and effort and energy doing what I did to go and see every single point and breed in the world in their country of origin. That's craziness. But it's the craziness that I've learned to accept of myself and, <laughs> and it's what keeps me happy. I'm definitely glad that you did it, my man. Real happy you went on okay. it. Because, I mean, to to me, and I could probably speak for Josh on this, that just sounds pretty normal, right? I want to well, find good. out. <laughs> There's a bunch of, not only two fellow Canadians, but three fellow crazy men talking dogs. Well, two Canadians. I'm I'm all USA. No, I'm saying it's two Canadians. Yeah. Three oh, good. Okay, crazy okay. Yeah. perfect. Right. Perfect. We won't hold it against you. Yeah, it's okay. No, we won't. <laughs> So, uh, Craig, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, if they want to check out your book, I know your website, uh, dogwilling.ca. Is there another way people can get a hold of you or uh, stuff you'd like to tell any of our listeners about? Well, sure. I mean, the, the best sort of hub to find all of the things that I do is, is dogwilling.ca. And it's, it's specifically .ca and not dot .com because basically I'm in Canada and I wanted a Canadian uh, URL. So it's dogwilling, all one word, .ca. And from there, it'll link to my blog, it'll link to my photos, my photo essays, my videos, uh, and upcoming projects and all that sort of stuff. So the only other thing I would mention that you might want to go to directly is my blog. It's called Pointing Dog Blog. Uh, and it's on Blogger, so you just uh, you could just Google my name, just Google Pointing Dog Blog, or just Google DogWilling.ca. All of those will lead you to the same place, and from there you can sort of explore all the different links I have. I'm quite active on social media. I'm quite active uh, with my blog and, and, and photography and things like that. So I've always got something something going on. In fact, my wife and I are leaving in two weeks. We're going to France um, to photograph some more dogs. So and That's then awesome. bring back cool. a couple of puppies. Oh, cool! Wow. Dude. Very cool. 
Well, uh, thanks a ton for coming on here, Craig. Uh, we had a blast talking to you, and uh, I'm gonna shoot you a message once we're done, so I can I can get all all the info you want to make sure we can we can put together so people can get a hold of you and add to your your number of emails you get each week about what kind of pointing dog to get. <laughs> but uh, honestly, man, thanks a ton for taking the time. And um, you know, uh, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm a big fan of the book, and I'm really looking forward to volume two. Thank you very much, you guys. Uh, keep up the great work. I think that, you know, it, I, I would encourage you, by all means, you know, getting a dog is the best way to get into hunting. And hunting with a dog is the best way to deepen your appreciation and love for dogs. There is nothing more solid than that connection between man and dogs. And I'll leave you with the one little sort of, you know, um, um, fable that I love. And I heard this when I was a kid, and it's always stuck with me. It's, it's, it's when, the, when the, the, the Grand Manitou here in Manitoba were named after the, the Great Spirit Manitou. When the Great Spirit Manitou created the, wor- the world, he had man and all the animals, and he divided them. And he said, animals, you go on this side, and man, you go on this side. I'm going to make a great canyon between the two of you so that you will never be together. And just as his hand was coming down to carve this big canyon in the earth, just as he was about to strike, dog jumped over from the animals to be at man's side. And that stuck with me as a kid, and that is how I live my life right now, is that when you hunt with a dog, you're basically replaying that exact action every time you're out with them. You are reinforcing that whole idea that there is something special between man and dog that you can never replicate with anything else. Well, that's beautiful, man. Couldn't couldn't, uh, end it any better myself. So thanks again, Craig, and we'll look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks, Craig.